Harshad Delil, the Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure, the DM and, and the team from the Department of Public Works and Infrastructure. Our eight team that supports us from the parliament. Greetings to you all. We are almost to the tail end of our deliberations on the expropriation bill number 23 of 2020. Because today, after having gone clause by clause in the last few days, we are today going to get the responses from the legal advice of the Department of Public Works and, and, and Infrastructure. As honorable members have raised many issues, and we then expect them to respond on those issues as the authors and people that prepared this bill that we took recording it from, in progress we took it from province to province listened to oral presentations dealt with written submissions on this bill so you are all welcome in this uh, important meeting honorable members miss martinese can you present any apologies if you have them Morning, Chairperson, um, Honourable Members, uh, the Minister and our colleagues. The apology that I saw, um, that I got on my side, is from Honourable Siwisa, who will be checking out of this meeting at 10 o'clock because she has to rush for another. I also noted a meeting and an apology from the Honourable Hicklin, but I see that she's um, logged in. Um, I'm not sure if she'll be participating in the meeting because she indicated that she is not well. Um, that's it from my side. Thank you, Ms. Martinez. Thanks, Chair. I'm fine. Thank you. We are happy that we are fine, Honorable Hicklin. Um, thank you, Ms. Martinez, for those apologies. I think the one of Honorable Hicklin, we then have to remove it even from the minutes that we will have. Um, can you present the agenda then? One, Chair. Yes, uh, Honourable Mjabo. Morning, Honourable Chairperson and the Minister and the members. Uh, I've, I have one apology from Honourable Lizzie. She's not well. Okay, thank you. Hoping that Honourable Shabalala uh, recovers from whatever that she's ailing from speedily. Um, can we get to the, the agenda, Ms. Patinese? Thanks, Chair. Um, today, Chairperson, the Portfolio Committee will be receiving some feedback from the Department of Public Works and Infrastructure on the issues raised while the Portfolio Committee was going through the phase of considering the bill, uh, the expropriation bill B23 of 2020, clause by clause. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thank you. We then um, hand over to the Department. Over to you, Minister. Good morning, Honourable Chairperson and Honourable Members, and thank you for the opportunity once again. Um, I would like to commend the Portfolio Committee for all the work that you've put into this bill uh, and all the public hearings and uh, just the dedication that you've shown in dealing with the bill. Um, the department is being asked, uh, you know, to give some advice on the portfolio committee queries. Uh, we are here to respond to that chairperson um, for your consideration. 
I am joined by Advocate Senior Counsel Yudai Naidu, and then um, I've not checked, and, and some of the Department of Officials this morning. So I will give over to, to you, Chairperson, and then um, Advocate uh, Yudai Naidu can, um, can take us through our, our proposals uh, to the Portfolio Committee. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Minister. Over to your team then. Honorable Chairperson and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity. I must say at the outset, I'm very flattered that uh, the minister has conferred silk on me. I am not a senior counsel, <laughs> but uh, I'm very glad that she thinks that I could be. I'm led in this matter by um, Mr. Jeff Bartlender. In the next few months, you will get that silk. <laughs> the minister has spoken. <laughs> as your ladyship pleases. <laughs> Um, I'm led in this matter by Mr. Jeff Budland, who uh, regrettably isn't able to join us today because of another court commitment. Um, <clears throat> we were able to consider the committee's queries, which were provided to us on Friday afternoon, and we did so um, under urgent circumstances, mindful of the committee's meeting today. We have prepared a written note which I believe was circulated to the committee members yesterday. It's a 20 page document, which covers <clears throat> not all, but most of what we think are the most important concerns that committee members raised during deliberations. I should say upfront that there are other matters which we think would require our input, which we haven't had an opportunity to consider and to comment on in this note. And with your leave chairperson, if the committee requires and if the um, department so instructs, we will be, we are prepared to provide a supplementary note on the balance of those issues. For now, I would like to canvas the following matters which are in our note. <clears throat> the committee raised several queries about items defined in clause one of the bill. We have addressed the more important items in our note on pages <clears throat> two all the way through to page 10. We then canvas matters in clause two, clause three, which relates to powers of the minister <clears throat> and clause five which concerns the investigation stage. <clears throat> we then referred to the topic of mortgages, which spans various clauses. And we refer to that issue from pages 15 to 17 of our note. <clears throat> we then deal with clause seven, which is the notice of intention to expropriate clause. And under that heading, we propose an alternative, more streamlined model for the expropriation process, 
and one which addresses the committee's concerns about the possibility of property being expropriated before compensation has either been agreed to or decided. And lastly, we make some concluding remarks. I would propose then to begin with some of the committee's comments regarding clause one and certain definitions in the bill. <coughs> with your leave chairperson, unless there are any queries you would like to raise at the outset. Advocate Naidu, no, it's only the queries that were raised in the, in the, in the, in the discussion of clause by clause uh, that we did in the last week. If there is any query, it will be a rider on the proposed your response that you are bringing to us, not something new. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Chairperson. I would like to commence with the long title. <clears throat> we had over the last few years provided advice to the Department of Public Works under the various ministers. And over time, our advice filtered through to the committee and found its way into various iterations of the bill. Um, there was a point in time where work on the bill uh, reached a standstill point, and so some of our advice did not find uh, expression through the bill after certain amendments. I think it's important that we reiterate um, some of that advice now, particularly in response to the queries raised by committee members. The first is the issue of the long title. <clears throat> the committee raised a concern that the long title refers to nil compensation. And our response is this. The Constitution does contemplate nil compensation for expropriation if it is just and equitable. So notionally, it is a possibility under the Constitution. It would be inappropriate for the bill to exclude that notional possibility and therefore constrain what the constitution permits. That's the first point. The second point is we appreciate why the committee members raised this concern. It's because the long title doesn't put nil compensation into context by explaining that all expropriations must be subject to compensation which is just and equitable as a general proposition. And in exceptional cases, it may notionally be possible for no compensation to be paid where the circumstances dictate. And we hope that for the legal reason that I have raised and also for the, the matter of properly contextualizing the place of no compensation, the committee will accept our proposal at paragraph seven of our note to amend the long title to provide for the following matters. <clears throat> that is expropriation for a public purpose or in the public interest, to regulate the procedure for expropriation of property for public purpose or in the public interest, and importantly, including the payment of compensation and then to identify certain instances where nil compensation might be just and equitable. Of course, depending on the circumstances, 
and in the public interest. <clears throat> and lastly, and importantly, to repeal the old Expropriation Act. That is a matter which has inadvertently been omitted from the long title, but which is necessary to include. I'll move on to clause one and various definitions that the committee has queried. The committee raised a concern about intangible property being included not only in the definition of court, but also within the definition of property, which is defined broadly with reference to section 25.1 of the constitution. Let me start with the notion of intangible property. The constitutional court has been clear that it would be inadvisable to attempt to define property prescriptively under the constitution. Property under the constitution, section 25, has a far more elastic meaning than property as traditionally understood under the common law. And so if the bill were to restrict itself to traditional notions of property under the common law, it will create an unnecessary tension between the bill and the constitution. The aim of this bill is to promote a symmetry between section 25 of the constitution and the primary legislation which it will embody if enacted. And so the, the starting point is that there is this difference between constitutional property and traditional property under the common law. Traditional property under the common law does not always include intangible property. There are some types of properties which the constitution recognizes, despite the fact that they are intangible, because they have some significance, value, or utility to the holder. An example would be a grocer's license to sell alcohol. Yet another example would be uh, a right to claim for unjustified enrichment. Let's assume that one has a, a contract which fails to comply with the provisions of the National Credit Act and credit is extended. The contract is invalid, but money has already passed hands. There is a right under the common law to reclaim that money, and that right is itself recognized as constitutional property. If that property is limited in any way, that would need to be a constitutionally justifiable limitation. If it is, if it is capable of being deprived of, then it stands to reason that it is also capable of being expropriated, in other words, acquired by the state for public purpose or in the public interest. And the problem is, if the bill does not recognize that type of constitutional property as property under the bill, it will be providing insufficient protection to owners or holders of that type of property. And that's something the bill should avoid. We think the best way of avoiding that situation is to ensure a perfect symmetry between the definition of property under the bill and the evolving notion of property under the constitution. That brings me to a related point, which is the definition of court. The criticism was that 
court should not include courts that have jurisdiction over intangible property. And for the reasons that I've given as to the definition of property, we think that the jurisdiction of courts shouldn't be constrained to dealing with those types of properties that are recognized only under the common law and not under the more expansive uh, notion of constitutional property in terms of Section 25 of the Constitution. The suggestion from members of the committee and the department was that we should consider the removal of magistrates' courts in favor of the high court with its various divisions and courts of similar status as the high court in terms of section 170 of the constitution. We previously advised that the thinking behind including magistrates courts under the bill was to make access to courts um, more readily available to people who didn't live in urban areas and also to people who might not be able to afford access to the high court. That was the original thinking behind the inclusion of magistrates courts. It was supported by the fact that under PAGA, that is the Promotion of Administrative Justice Act, the Minister of Justice may designate certain magistrates courts as courts having jurisdiction in respect of administrative matters. That is, the judicial review of administrative action. In terms of section nine, capital A, Padgett, the minister may also appoint certain magistrates who have gone on training and acquired the necessary skills and expertise to preside over administrative disputes. The department has raised a valid concern. However, magistrates courts are not courts of record. So, one magistrate might give a decision in matter A, which magistrate B might give a completely different um, decision in respect of, and that's not desirable. Secondly, magistrates courts generally lack the expertise and capacity and experience of judges in the high court. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Magistrates' courts have limited monetary jurisdiction. And in order to accommodate not only challenges to decisions to expropriate, but also disputes about the amount of compensation, it would probably be necessary to increase the monetary jurisdiction of the magistrates' courts. Of course, that is not something that lies within the competence of the Department of Public Works. This committee will need to engage with the Department of Justice and possibly um, undergo a further round of public consultation in order to alter the jurisdiction of the magistrates' courts. And having considered those reasons, it seemed to us better to exclude magistrates' courts from the definition of courts under the bill and instead to opt for the High Court with its various juris, uh, divisions and any court that may be created in terms of Section 170 of the Constitution of the same status as a High Court. We were also asked to consider 
the relevance, if any, of the land court bill on the definition of court under the expropriation bill. And I studied that, that bill um, as much as I could over the course of the weekend, given the limited time, to try to understand exactly what kind of jurisdiction it was intending to confer on this new, new court, this land claim court. And I must confess, I was very puzzled. One would have expected that the land court bill would, would have said in very simple terms, the land court has jurisdiction in respect of matters relating to land. Those matters are X, Y, and Z. Unfortunately, it doesn't. The jurisdiction clause is contained in clause seven. And essentially what it says is the land claims court has jurisdiction exclusively, in other words, to the exclusion of all other courts in respect of matters over which it has jurisdiction, which is rather circular and empty because it doesn't give substantive content to what the court's competence really is. It then takes us on an excursion from clause seven to clause 42, which deals with the powers of the appeal court. And then clause 42 in turn takes one back to clause 25, which deals with the powers of the land court. But all it says is that the land court has exclusive powers to determine matters which fall within its jurisdiction, as well as any incidental matter, which might be in its opinion, just and equitable for it to determine. This is a very imprecise uh, parameter. And for that reason, the public works bill, um, it would be inadvisable for the public works bill to pin the jurisdiction of the courts under it to the land courts bill for these technical reasons. There is also a, a more general reason, and that is, the land court bill is not yet law, and it would be ill-advised for the public um, works, I beg your pardon, for the expropriation bill to define the ambit of court's jurisdiction in respect of law that does not yet exist. We think, therefore, that the simplest and most effective um, definition for court would be the high court and a court of similar status. If in the future, parliament passes the land court bill, having tightened up the jurisdictional issues that I've pointed out, then it will happily fit within the definition of court under the expropriation bill as we've proposed. The bottom line is the jurisdiction of the land court is not something that this committee needs to be concerned with at this juncture or at all. The committee raised a query about the definition of deliver. And it is a good concern. Why is email not included in the definition of deliver? It's a pertinent concern and it is one that has merit. I think that um, the email method should be included in the authorized means of delivery but that one doesn't need to amend the definition of deliver to do so. 
Instead, one could include email as a mode of delivery under clause 24.4 and simplify the language of the definition of deliver in clause one, simply to refer to the mode of delivery authorized in terms of section 24. To that, I would add one qualification. Like delivery and transmission by fax, there may be um, glitches in the email system. And so to ensure that um, delivery is effective, the committee might want to consider requiring that delivery by email be followed up with delivery by snail mail, as it were. Um, the DA also raised an issue about the definition of disputing parties. And I think what lies at the core of the query is a concern as to why the definition of disputing parties does not include parties who dispute the decision to expropriate, but only parties who dispute the amount of compensation. And there is a reason for this, which stems from the language of section 25 of the constitution. Before I get to that reason, I should allay the concern up front. The bill does not preclude any party from approaching a court to dispute the decision to expropriate. In fact, if one considers <clears throat> clause 25, uh, I beg your pardon, clause 21, it's expressed in clause 21.6 that courts are not deprived of the power to determine any matter relating to the application of the act and that any person may bring that matter to court for determination. So section 34 of the constitution, the right of access to court is given full effect to in terms of clause 21.4, yeah, I beg your pardon, 21.6 of the bill. The reason for limiting the definition of disputing party to those persons who do not agree on the amount of compensation offered by an expropriating authority is founded in the language of section 25.2b of the constitution. It provides that property may be expropriated in terms of a law of general application subject to compensation. And this is the important bit. The amount of which and the time and manner of payment of which have either A, been agreed to by those affected or B, decided or approved by a court. So the constitution makes a distinction between the decision to expropriate on the one hand and the amount of compensation that is ultimately to be settled on, on the other hand. The decision to expropriate is an administrative act. It is the expropriating authority, an organ of state exercising expropriation powers in terms of legislation, which makes that decision. It is not a court which makes that decision. The manner in which an affected person may challenge that decision 
is the traditional route of judicial review under Padger. The bill in clause 21.1 foreshadows that. Compensation is treated differently. The bill, the constitution says that compensation may either be agreed to, that is between the expropriating authority and the affected person. So it's consensus which counts or may be decided or approved. But the person who decides or approved is not the expropriating authority, it's the court. And so there is no administrative decision that's taken in respect of the amount of compensation. During the expropriation process, the administrator makes an offer of compensation. And if the offer is accepted, then there is agreement. And then the first condition in, in section 25.2b of the constitution is met. If there is no agreement, then the parties must go to court. It is not a matter which a, an expropriating authority can decide of its own accord because the constitution expressly invests the power to decide the amount of compensation where there is no agreement in a court. And so a separate mechanism from judicial review under Padger is required to determine um, non-agreement or dispute about the amount of compensation alone. Clause 21 of the bill attempts to regulate that matter, the question of disputed compensation. And the convenient shorthand to refer to an expropriated owner, an expropriated holder, another interested party, which may include a mortgagee, is to use the term disputing party in respect of the issue of compensation. And the mechanisms that the bill prescribes for resolving that dispute is one, mediation, which goes to the purpose of seeking consensus between the parties for the purposes of section 25.2b of the constitution, or alternatively, determination by a court, also for the purpose of section 25.2b of the constitution. So I hope that clarifies why the definition of disputing party does not include the uh, any dispute as to the question of whether the expropriation um, is lawful. It doesn't exclude it um, in the sense that it precludes a challenge to the decision to expropriate, but it excludes it for its own purposes because the definition of disputing party is limited to resolution of the issue of compensation under clause 21 alone. It is, a, it is a subtle point. So if I may ask whether there are any questions that I could um, respond to on the point. Yeah. Chairperson, maybe with your permission, can I just ask one question to the advocate? Okay, Ms. Pome. Thank you, Chairperson. I just wanted the advocate maybe to speak to the issue of the word or decided in terms of what he has said with regards to Section 25.2 and maybe if it's my misunderstanding, the fact that 
it is only the courts that may decide or approve and make a determination on compensation because there is the word agreed, then there is the word or decided, and then there is the last one or approved by, by a court. So from what he has said, where do we place decided in that uh, explanation and legal position he has explained? Thank you, Chair. I'm grateful for the question. Thank you very much. If I may direct your attention to um, clause 25.2b itself, there is a an important linguistic um, identifier which tells us why decided does not mean decided by an administrative body. The constitution uses the conjunctive phrase either or, and the either or splits up two things. On the one hand is the word agreed. So it's either agreed and agreed by whom? Well, it can only be the expropriator and the expropriatee. That's plain. And the or following um, the words those affected is the other half of the um, of the conjunctive phrase either or. It's decided or approved by a court. We say that by a court refers to both decided and approved. In, in other words, it excludes the possibility that decided can mean decided by another authority. And let me explain why. If the constitution had meant that a court could only approve and nothing more, then it would relegate the court to the role of a rubber stamping authority, which would be inconsistent with various other provisions of the constitution, which requires the role the courts to determine rights. Approved implies that the court is satisfied with the offer made and doesn't alter it. Decided, on the other hand, necessarily signifies that the court might not approve, but might make a decision which varies from the offer. And so the phrase decided or approved goes together with the phrase by a court. It can't be split up from that modality by a court. Does that answer the question? With your permission, Chapasini, if I may. Miss Pume? Just a short you, answer. Okay, can you just come can you just come in, Patty? I'm going to raise something at the end. Thank you. Okay, Chaperson. Um, in response to what the advocate just asked, Chaperson, I just want to add and, and maybe clarify that there are two O's that appear in section 252B. And if we look at the first one, it was used in order that it doesn't use the end, which will eventually mean all those things listed there must happen all the time we are dealing with this provision. But the first O is the exactly the one that seeks to differentiate what I think the advocate has spoken to. So that's why I'm still believing that there are instances that in terms of section 25.2, 
B, even the expropriating authority may determine or decide on the compensation. Thank you, Chair. Mm. If I, I, I accept um, your, your concern, if that was so, if your hypothesis is correct, that the expropriating authority may make a decision, um, then it would be unnecessary to state, as the Constitution does, that the expropriating authority may agree. Because if it has the power to determine, then consensus would be immaterial. And so on a proper contextual interpretation, I think that the first or, that is the, the or that comes after the words by those affected, must be read together with either, so that the means of finalizing compensation are twofold. First, agreement, or alternatively, decision or approval. And coming to the point raised, the question is, who must decide or who must approve? And if, if on the, the theory put to me, a court may only approve and not decide because decision is reserved for an administrative body, then that would run into tension with the notion that an administrative body may agree. And secondly, it would signify that all a court may do is say that the administrator was right, but nothing else. And that can't be correct. Courts are there to make independent decisions about rights and obligations. The third option, which hasn't been mooted, but which I think is suggested between the lines, is that decided or approved could mean decided or approved by a court or an administrator. But if that were the case, then the Constitution would have said so. The Constitution wouldn't have left an administrator out and um, mentioned a court instead. So I think there are various contextual factors which militate against the proposition that um, Section 25.2b of the Constitution permits an administrator who makes the decision to expropriate also to make an administrative decision in respect of the amount of compensation. Oh, and there's a further reason. Let's assume that the, the, the Constitution did contemplate that the administrator makes a decision. If that was so, then a court couldn't make the same decision in respect to the same matter, unless it were exercising a power of review. And if that were so, the court would not be making a decision on the correctness of the administrator's determination of compensation. Instead, the court would be making at most a determination about the lawfulness of the process that the administrator followed in reaching in, in determining the amount of compensation, regardless of the outcome reached. And so there are several tensions that exist in relation to the um, hypothesis put to me. I hope that answers the question.
Chairperson, if I may continue. Uh, please, please continue, uh, Advocate Naidu. Thank you, Chairperson. If I may say, we have uh, responded to this in a written opinion, and I'm happy to provide an excerpt uh, via the department to the committee to um, satisfy the member's question. If I may move on to the definition of expropriating authority on page seven. Um, during the course of the public consultation process, we identified, um, uh, thank, thank you, uh, Honorable Graham Murray. During the public consultation process, we identified a shortcoming in the definition of expropriating authority. Let me go back to 2013 to explain why expropriating authority was defined in the way it has been. There was a case in which a, a party which had acquired mineral rights under the old apartheid legislation was given an opportunity under the new order legislation to convert those rights into new order rights. The legislation created a window of time in which those old order mineral rights had to be created, uh, had to be converted into new rights under the MPRDA, the legislation in question. As it happened, those holders of old order rights didn't do so. And so the, legisl the legislation terminated those rights. The principle was we recognize you've got these acquired rights, but you need to bring them into modernity. And we're going to give you an amount of time in which to do so. But if you don't use it, then you're going to lose it. You can't hold on to those rights in perpetuity and prevent those minerals from being exploited by other people and for the nation's benefit. The Constitutional Court recognized that this was a legitimate purpose in a case much later called Aquila Steel. But in 2013, the Constitutional Court was faced with a challenge to this legislation on the basis that the quashing of these old order rights amounted to an expropriation. And the court said, well, we know that you have had the, you did have these rights and the legislation has taken away these rights. And so you've been deprived of these rights but we don't think that you've been expropriated of these rights because the state hasn't acquired the rights to use itself. It's not like the government took away your car and is now using it to uh, pursue a public purpose or in the public interest. It's quite different. What the government is now doing is saying that it may issue permits to other persons to exploit the mineral rights that you once had. And that's on the strength of the fact that you haven't converted them in terms of the window of opportunity that you were afforded. That was your choice. The principle that comes out of that case is this. The Constitutional Court held that the distinction between a deprivation in terms of Section 25.1 of the Constitution and an expropriation in terms of Section 25.2 of the Constitution is that the state must acquire the right that was taken or 
something substantially similar in quality and nature to what was lost. We included that in the definition of expropriation. We said expropriation means acquisition. That's the language that the Constitutional Court used in the majority judgment. Acquisition by an expropriating authority or by an organ of state through an expropriating authority. And the committee will remember that it raised a, a, a query about the minister's power in terms of clause 3.2 to acquire property on behalf of an organ of state which, which itself does not have powers of expropriation under legislation. So in the definition of expropriation, expropriating authority, we tried to make it consistent with what the constitutional court said in AGRI-SA. Of course, as the dissenting judgment in AGRI-SA pointed out, the constitutional court was not concerned with the possibility of transferring ownership to third-party beneficiaries for land reform purposes, land, water, or related reform purposes, land restitution purposes, or to secure tenure of persons who have insecure tenure as a result of historic racist practices. That wasn't what the court was concerned with there. And so having reflected on what was raised in the public consultation process, it, it seemed to us quite clear that um, expropriation as defined must take into account the possibility that an expropriating authority might not itself acquire land or other property for its own use, but might instead use powers of expropriation to facilitate what the constitution itself requires in clause 25, six and eight, land restitution, land reform or water and related reform. So as matters stand, the definition of expropriation is under-inclusive. And this is a point that my uh, leader, Mr. Badlander, made, I believe, when he addressed the committee on the previous occasion. And that is something we need to correct. Um, I beg your pardon, Chairperson, I have jumped ahead somewhat, but um, it, it flows from the definition of expropriating authority. And expropriating authority would be empowered in terms of legislation to expropriate, that is to acquire property for a very defined public purpose or in a for a defined public interest. And who defines that? Well, parliament does, it's in terms of the legislation. And it's important to include in the bill that qualification because an expropriating authority cannot acquire property for a purpose for which it hasn't been authorized by empowering legislation. And the empowering legislation will define the ambit of that power. It may be for health purposes, for housing purposes, for education purposes. And it's very important to link the power to expropriate, expropriate with the purpose of the expropriation as circumscribed by the empowering legislation which Parliament has created. And so our proposal in paragraph 30 is to say in express terms that an, an expropriating authority 
is an organ of state, but not any organ of state. It's an organ of state that parliament has selected and imbued with powers to expropriate for purposes that the legislation itself circumscribes and defines. That then brings me to the definition of expropriation and this distinction between deprivation and deprivation plus acquisition, which is constitutive of expropriation. The compulsory of acquisition, I beg your pardon, the compulsory acquisition of property by an expropriating authority is only one aspect of expropriation. Let's consider the case where public works wants to expropriate land to build a dam for public purposes. Clearly, it's going to be used for the public. The purpose is known. It will be in terms of the Water Act or related legislation. And the owner remains the state, the expropriating authority. But there may be instances where an organ of state which doesn't have expropriating powers under legislation needs property for public purpose or in the public interest. A classic example might be a state-owned entity like the Kocha um, Development Corporation, which is engaging in hugely beneficial um, public development activities, but does not itself have powers of expropriation. So it would rely on an expropriating authority to acquire property for its benefit in terms of the expropriating authorities empowering legislation. That's what the current definition covers. What the current definition doesn't cover is what I've already explained, the possibility that there may be third party beneficiaries who are individuals, who are people living on farms, who are people who are labor tenants who've been living on farms for three generations who've been providing labor services essentially for free uh, to the persons who own their lands in the form of indentured or slave labor. It may be people who've had their rights to, um, to land dispossessed of in terms of historical practices. But those people and the acquisition of land on their behalf doesn't fall under the definition of expropriation at present. And so what we proposed in paragraph 35 of the uh, opinion is that the definition of expropriation be changed to account for those individuals who are not organs of state, who are not going to use the property for a public purpose, but who are going to use it for their own purposes in the public interest, because there is a public interest in facilitating land reform. Why? Because the constitution says so in express terms. The language that we proposed is this. Expropriation means the compulsory acquisition of property by an expropriating authority. That's anodyne, there's nothing controversial about that. Or, and here's the important part, by a third party beneficiary for a public purpose or in the public interest. The question is who is a third party beneficiary? Well, as I've explained, it includes those individuals who would 
receive land in terms of a land restoration restitution process in the public interest to meet the requirement of section 25, 6 and 8 of the constitution. But a third party beneficiary would also include those organs of state who don't have expropriation powers themselves, but who might need property for a public purpose, like the Industrial Development Corporation I mentioned in my example. So we think the phrase third party beneficiary is broad enough to encompass those organs of state that the current definition caters for, as well as individuals who should acquire the land in the public interest. And what the definition would facilitate is for direct transfers to be made to those third party beneficiaries without the state having to become owner itself and then transfer the land to the third party beneficiaries. So it cuts out an unnecessary step in the process. And that's not something novel. Many countries, many established democracies around the world do have these, do cater for this facility. And of course, the protection to ensure that it is not abused for third parties who are not going to use the land for a public purpose or in the public interest is built into the definition of expropriation as we proposed by insertion of the qualification third party beneficiary for a public purpose or in the public interest. Now, this definition is proposed not only to cater for the beneficiaries of land reform, but also to protect those who will lose property for land reform purposes or for any other public purpose where a third party which is not an expropriating authority might be the beneficiary. We know that land reform is constitutionally required. We know that direct transfers of, um, of property, land in particular, is contemplated in the constitution where the beneficiaries become the owners in terms of a expropriatory process and as the bill stands, um, those who might be affected by the, by the implementation of that process are not adequately protected. So if the definition stands as it is, a, land, a person affected by the expropriation of land for land reform purposes would not receive the guarantee of just an equitable compensation under the bill. Why? Because the definition of expropriation doesn't include those third party transfers in the public interest. And so defining expropriation as we have proposed also guarantees protection to those who would be affected by the loss of their property for uh, through third party transfers. It's an important point, so I'd like to pause for questions if I, if, if you would uh, allow, Chairperson. All right, I'll then move on to the definition of public purpose, which starts sorry, on page- Sorry, Chair, sorry, can we, uh, sorry, can I make sorry, a, an Yeah, uh, Honorable Graham Murray. 
Um, thank you very, very much. Um, I, I, I just actually, you didn't give us an opportunity to make input on the organs of state one, which was the one prior to the one you've just covered, Advocate. So um, I would just like to say that I appreciate what you said in terms of covering the organs of state, but my, my issue with that is if you look at Section 3, um, 2 and Section 3, 3, I don't believe it's covered by the definition of expropriating authority because these are organs of state that are not expropriating authorities. In other words, they're not given the same um, um, powers under, under any enabling legislation, and, and, and the minister is then having to expropriate on their behalf. So one of the issues we raised was the fact that you say in your, in your document that the minister may then um, do so only if she's satisfied. The, the bill stipulates must. So that was one of the reasons um, we raised that, is that um, the, the minister is compelled under this legislation, under this proposed bill, to, to expropriate on behalf of an organ of state that is not recognized as an expropriating authority. So, um, and then it goes on in, this, in the next section to give other things that that land could be used for that don't qualify then under the definitions of public interest and public purpose and, and apply specifically to their own um, policy objectives or the things that they're trying to achieve because it's saying it's connected to the provision and management of the accommodation, land and infrastructure needs of the organ of state. So my issue around that is, is that I don't know why the minister must be compelled to expropriate on behalf of an organ of state that is not defined under, under this, this bill or enabling legislation if you look at what that definition of an expropriating authority is. And then they're also expropriating outside of the definition of public interest and public purpose because it's for their own needs. Um, so our, our, our issue with that was to remove those clauses, section 3.2 and section 3.3, three, three, um, mm -hmm. because we believe that they don't fall within the, the ambit of what the, what the law is saying in terms of those definitions. So I just wanted to get clarity on that, please. Thanks very much for the clarification. Um, there is a response in our, in our note to the first aspect of the question, which is um, whether the minister's power is discretionary or not. And um, if I may refer to paragraph 29, as well as to the previous note, which I'm not certain the committee received, um, it was the note that um, Mr. Budlander presented last. The, the, the point is this. The language of the bill says must, but must has to be read in conjunction with the minister being satisfied that the property is indeed required for a public purpose or in the public interest. I take your point that... Um, it might the the fact that the request must be for the public purpose or in the public interest um, might not be clearly expressed enough. But I'll deal with that shortly. Let's deal with the first point: the discretionary element. So sub two says, um, if an organ of state which does not have expropriating powers satisfies the minister, which means the minister does have to apply her mind to whether the expropriate, rather whether the organ of state in question has met the requirements of public purpose or public interest. Why? Because sub two 
has to be read in conjunction with someone. The minister may expropriate property only if it is for a public purpose or in the public interest. So if the minister exercises that power at the instance of an organ of state, it can only be within the remit of what clause 3.1 permits. And if the minister is satisfied, has thoroughly satisfied herself that whatever um, the object that the organ of state seeks to achieve uh, may be, is aligned with the means, with the expropriation. And, um, all right, so the point about public purpose and public interest is re-emphasized in the second line of clause two. The minister must be satisfied that the organ of state requires property for public purpose or in the public interest. And the word requires is important here. It means it must be necessary, not just a nice to have. It must be necessary for fulfilling a public purpose or in the public interest. What is the public purpose or the public interest? I'll get to that presently. But what it means is um, it cannot be used for a purely private purpose or a purely private interest to the extent that the organ of state requests particular property which will service its own accommodation, land and infrastructure needs in terms of paragraph three, they must also be needs which are necessary for a defined public purpose or in the public interest. And the reason for including the phrase provision and management of the accommodation, land and infrastructure needs is because the request is being made of a very particular expropriating authority. It's the Minister of Public Works. And the provision and management of accommodation, land and infrastructure falls within the Minister of Public Works mandate as defined in legislation. So let's, let's take the, the example further. Could an organ of state relying on section, a clause 3.2 request of the Minister of Public Works to expropriate land for um, a borehole or for purposes that fall outside the provision and management of accommodation, land and infrastructure? The answer would be no. There may be other legislation such as under the Water Act or uh, a good example, well, mm, an example might be uh, under the, the Schools Act or the Higher Education Act, where land is required for education purposes, but not necessarily for accommodation or infrastructural purposes, um, where a different expropriating authority might be the one to whom an organ of state, which itself does not have expropriating powers, would need to make that request. But that's not the purpose of this bill to define. That may be a substantive provision, which another piece of legislation needs to define. I will come back to the meaning of organ of state presently, but let me, let me pause for a minute to explain that this bill predominantly does not confer powers of expropriation on organs of state. Instead, what it does is it creates a framework for the process of, of expropriation for 
other expropriating authorities to exercise their substantive powers of expropriation in terms of other empowering legislation. The only exception to that is the power of expropriation conferred on the Minister of Public Works in terms of Clause 3. And it's for that reason that clause, the language of Clause 3.2 and 3.3 was selected. So who is an organ of state? Well, organ of state is a legal term of art, which is defined in Section 239 of the Constitution. And it isn't limited to departments in the national or provincial spheres of government. It's not limited to municipalities. It's not limited to ministers. It could even be, as the Constitutional Court has said, a private organization that has assumed constitutional functions, just like Sasa did when it assumed the constitutional function of rolling out social income grants, but not for all purposes, only for that particular purpose. And so because the notion of organ of state is so elastic, it would, for the same reasons that defining property um, in the bill should not be constrictive, um, I beg your pardon, it should not be restrained by um, beyond what the constitution envisages, if I can put it as simply as that. Um, you did raise another point, um, which I made a note of. I'd like to deal with it now. Ah, the purpose. What is a public purpose? That segues very neatly into the discussion on page eight. Um, I see that another member, uh, Honorable Hickling, has her camera on. May I proceed to finish my response to um, Ms. Graham Murray, or would you like to interpose? No, uh, Advocate Naidu, uh, uh, I think you understand that there's only one chair here. Uh, so I will indicate when there is someone who would like to speak. There is nothing wrong in honourable members opening up their videos. So there is a way that I can see that the honourable member would like to speak. Thank you. Please continue. Thank you, honourable chairperson. All right, that segues very nicely into the definition of public purpose. At the moment, the bill defines public purpose with reference to the empowering legislation. And we think that's possibly all right, but we think that something more is required. Public purpose is determined by the ambit of the empowering legislation, yes. So if parliament passes an act for health purposes and empowers an expropriating authority to expropriate for health purposes, that power may be exercised only for health purposes and for no other purpose, unconnected to the objects of the legislation. What we think is important though, is to ensure that when that power is exercised, the property is actually used for the purpose. It's not simply taken and it doesn't just sit in as a state asset unutilized. So, the, the purpose that's identified has to be a purpose that is actually going to be realized. If government wants to take land for building a dam, then it's got to be reasonably 
possible that the dam is in fact going to be built. That it, it would be, it would not be in the public interest, for instance, to expropriate land at the top of Table Mountain, which I'm looking at, for building a dam, because it couldn't reasonably be uh, a, a it isn't a realizable purpose that stems from the exit that is connected to the exercise of that power. And so to tighten the definition and the use of these expropriating powers, we propose that in paragraph 39, the definition of public purpose is um, elaborated on and also tightened by including this requirement that the property concerned will be used for the identified public purpose. And by whom? It's not by anyone. It's used by a very specific category of beneficiary, and that's the public. When property is taken for a public purpose, the public must be the direct beneficiary of that taking. So the public would be the users of a dam. The public would be the users of a public hospital. The public would be the users of a public school. And although we haven't used the word directly, there is academic authority on which courts have not yet pronounced, which suggests that the difference between public purpose and public interest is that the public purpose envisages use by the public directly like a bridge or a road, whereas public interest means that the public won't be the direct beneficiaries of it, but there still is an important public objective served by the expropriation. Land reform is a classic example. And we know that because the constitution says so. It's not an example that one has to debate. Um, so hopefully that also addresses the definition of public interest, which we've um, deal, dealt with very briefly in paragraphs 41 to 43. The reason we've not used the words direct and indirect is because this is not a matter the courts have pronounced on. And we think that while the academic view is persuasive, it would be better to allow the courts the leeway to develop this jurisprudence. But, um, but as matters stand, at its core, public purpose does require uh, the public to use the asset once it's taken. All right. Have I answered your question? Thank you. Um, I'd like to move on then to the definition of owner and unregistered right holder. If I could amend the heading, please, on page nine above paragraph 44, um, I would like to include the, the words holder of a right. And I'd like to remind the committee of where this comes from. At the outset of this process, as far back as 2015, the, the schema of the bill um, was modeled on the Expropriation Act. And the distinction is made under that act between registered rights and unregistered rights. The thinking was that 
owner would be defined to mean those who have registered rights and those who had unregistered rights would be holders of rights, which seemed fine at the time. But what about owners who don't have their rights of ownership registered and who are not required to have their rights of ownership registered? That's a large category of people, people who own cars. Yes, of course, you get that that registration certificate, but that's just evidence of ownership. Ownership is a matter of of intention and possession and uh, common law. What about people who own pets or jewelry or, um, and I'm not suggesting that grandmother's pearls are going to be expropriated necessarily, but what about works of art, which might well be? They might be repatriated, whatever the, the case may be. Um, fleets of buses that might be necessary in emergency circumstances to transport people from their homes on the Cape Flats that have flooded to higher ground. Um, Golden Arrow might need to give up its buses temporarily, and they would not be regarded as owners under the current definition of owner. Why? Because their ownership rights are not registered they would have to sit under the definition of holder of a right, which is awkward. And one doesn't want to create legislation which is awkward and unintelligible to a reasonably educated member of the public who picks up the statute and wonders, where on earth do I fit? Someone's just taken my car. Am I uncatered for? And so what we proposed was that the definition of owner not be restricted to those who hold registered rights. It includes those who who have registered rights where those rights are required to be registered for ownership to vest. Now, what might those include? Well, if you acquire property by transfer, you would need to have that right registered. If you acquire a servitude other than under the common law of usage or some other means that doesn't require registration, that must be registered in the deeds registry. There may be other rights that I haven't yet considered. Things like shares may need to be registered in order for rights of ownership to vest. But ownership shouldn't be limited to that. We know that there are a category of of things which can be owned without registration being required. And so the qualification in the definition was inserted, namely owner, where the land, sorry, where the ownership of property or a right in question is registered, means a person whose name, in whose name such property or right is registered. But the qualification does not exclude ownership where um, ownership is not required to be registered. There is, however, a problem because in order for someone to appreciate that they as owner of of property that doesn't require to be registered are not going to be treated as holders of rights, the definition of holder of rights must exclude everyone who falls under the definition of owner. 
These are mutually exclusive things. If you think of them as bubbles, at the moment, there is an overlap between those who sit in the bubble of ownership and those who sit in the bubble of holder of rights. Because a holder of right is defined as someone who has a right which doesn't need to be registered, which would include people who have cars, people who own golden arrow buses. And so something needs to be done expressly to clarify that owners who are not required to have their rights of ownership registered do indeed fit under the definition of owner and not under the, the definition of holder of right. And therefore, we proposed <clears throat> um, paragraph 47 in our opinion. All right. The definition of valuer. When we started off, I think the Property Valuation um, Professions Act um, had was in its infancy as far as uh, coming into effect was concerned. The definition of valuer presently reads where the land in question, where the property in question is land, a valuer is a valuer in terms of that statute, the Property Valuers Professions Act. But two points arose on further reflection. Currently, there is legislation, old order legislation, which still empowers and still provides for the existence of the Land Affairs Board. And the Land Affairs Board still has powers, technically under statute, to value land. And so the valuation of land in terms of this bill should not be limited to valuers under the Property, um, uh, Property Valuers Professions Act. If the land um, affairs board is ultimately abolished, that will, be, that will be a matter for another day, which another piece of legislation should take care of. But the important point for this committee to remember in my submission is that it should not um, cut the land affairs board off at the pass unduly. That is a matter for a different committee and a different day. So the qualification in the definition of valuer, where land, uh, I beg your pardon, where in relation to land appears should be omitted. Would that affect the role of um, those persons registered under the Property Valuers Professions Act? Of course not. Why not? Because the Property Valuers Professions Act pertains only to valuation of immovable property. That's the first point. The second point is that property is not limited to land. I've given the example of buses which are needed to transport people in the case of uh, an emergency flood. Movable property is property under the Constitution. Rights to restitution are rights are property under the Constitution. And at the outset, I advise that the definition of property must be in sync 
with what the constitution envisages so that it is not under-inclusive and potentially inconsistent with the constitution. Well, how does that have a bearing on valuation? If property other than immovable property is going to be required for a public purpose or in the public interest and is sought to be expropriated, there needs to be a process to ensure that the expropriating authority ascertains the suitability of that property, the fitness of that property for purpose, and whose interests might be affected by taking that property for public purpose or in the public interest. Clause five of the bill is designed to ensure that the expropriating authority does its homework in that regard. Clause five governs the investigation phase. Yes, clause five does have subclauses which pertain only to land. Five two, five three, five four. Potentially five six, where one deals with occupiers. But the rest of clause five is not limited to land, and it's perfectly capable of applying to other kinds of property. And it is important that it does apply to, thank you, 55B. And it's very important that it does apply to other kinds of property. Because if it doesn't, then when that bus is needed for a public purpose or in the public interest, and there is no statutory obligation on an expropriating authority to inspect that bus beforehand to ensure that it is safe, roadworthy, capable of transporting people, um, then the constitutional requirement of fitness for purpose will not be served. And that would be constitutionally problematic. Well, what does that mean for the definition of valuer? Assessing the suitability of the property and determining its fitness for purpose will in part indicate to the expropriating authority whether it should expropriate. But another important variable in that assessment is how much the expropriating authority is going to have to pay for it. If it's too expensive, then despite being fit for purpose, the expropriating authority may, 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 I beg your pardon, may well want to look at alternatives and may well need to look at alternatives to justify that expense. The only way it can know that is if it receives a valuation beforehand. Statute doesn't comprehensively regulate who can va value what property. And for that reason, we propose that the definition of valuer be more generous in its uh, ambit so that a valuer is defined as any person who is suitably qualified to value property. And that refers to property other than land. Why? Because the definition doesn't exclude, in fact, to the contrary, it expressly includes those valuers whom statute requires to value land. 
those who are appointed under the Property Valuers Professions Act. But for all other kinds of property, there does need to be evaluation. Legislation has not yet comprehensively prescribed who those persons must be. And so it would be appropriate for the bill in our submission to require those people simply to be suitably qualified. A qualification usually is uh, something that is regulated by a professional body, like um, those who value uh, off the top of my head, uh, jewelry, or who um, value works of art or, uh, or, or, or vehicles. Um, I'm not aware of what those statutes are, but the point is there is suitable qualification. There may well be examinations that people may need to take either, either now or they could be in the future. Parliament may in the future may decide to stipulate conditions for um, qualifications in order to value certain kinds of property. And this bill, if the amendment in paragraph 53 is adopted, will have foreseen that development in the law. That brings me to clause 2.2. I... Person. Yes, Honourable Graham, Marin. Person, may I um, just interject at this point before we move on to clause 2.2, please? Okay. Thank you very much. Um, Advocate Nadi, thank you for, for the definitions you provided. And I'm, and I'm thrilled to see the, the amendments that are being made because I do believe that they make a huge difference in terms of the protection of, of everybody in this, um, you know, that is, that is um, touched by this act. The one thing that, that you haven't addressed, and I think it's because I raised it much later on in our deliberations, um, but I do believe that before we move from the definitions, it's something we should discuss. And that is the definition of land. We define property as, as being under Section 25. We define land parcel as a specifically designated item of property. But we reference land throughout the, the bill. And there isn't a clear definition of land that speaks to exactly what that incorporates. So when you're doing a valuation of land, are you valuing the land? Are you valuing the land and the improvements? Are you valuing... If, you, if you're expropriating for the purposes of land reform, are you evaluating then um, the equipment that would be necessary to keep it as a going concern, um, you know, the, mm -hmm. the land, the water rights on the property, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm concerned that there's no clear definition or attempt to define what land would then be as it is envisaged under this act. Um, and I think that that could also be, become problematic going forward. So I would just, um, as I say, I did raise it later on in our deliberations, but obviously um, you guys haven't had an opportunity to go through every single thing that was raised yet. Um, so you might not have reached, <laughs> reached that point in, in your deliberations. Thank you very much. Thank you, um, Honourable Member. It was a, a very long and very late Sunday and Monday uh, preparing this. So thank you for your understanding. There is a presumption that Parliament knows what the common law is when it enacts legislation. And land at common law includes all the appurtenances which accede to the land. There's a Latin term for it. I won't bore you with that. It, the, the term is accession in English. 
everything attached to the land becomes part of the land. That would include physical structures like a house or a barn or a pool. Um, it would include towers, water towers, windmills, electricity poles, if they're not already owned by the state. Um, it might include, um, and, and it would also include, unless specifically excluded, rights in land, like servitudes, water rights, land use rights, rights to graze over other land, which might subtract from the dominion of the subject property. It might be that there is a neighboring property that has a servitude over the subject property and, and therefore does what we call a subtraction from dominion. And so whoever acquires the subject property would have to take into account that somebody else has a right of way over that property, a right to draw water, a right to deforest, whatever it may be. And so part of the evaluation of the subject property would also be evaluating land uh, uh, structures and rights that have an impact on that property or which attach to the property. Equally, let's say the subject property is the dominant tenement and has rights over a neighboring property. That would form part of the valuation of the subject property for the expropriation. Why? Because it has greater value than just what lies within its four corners. And we think that the common law conception of land and accession to land covers the, the, the position fully. I would be hesitant to try to incorporate the common law into the definition of land. One, because it's vast, expansive, liable to change, and just very difficult. <laughs> and rather leave it to the presumption which generally applies to statutory interpretation that parliament intended the common law meaning to apply to a legal term of art where it is used. As far as valuation is concerned, um, I haven't considered the, the Valuers Act and how they um, value buildings and rights that attach to land. It is something I can come back to you on if required, but I would imagine that because section 25.3 is the lodestar which guides the valuers, um, an overly rigid approach would probably be issued, but I can't offer a definitive uh, answer on that at this point. If I may move on, Chairperson. Yes, please continue. Thank you. Clause 2.2 is um, a matter that has raised some concern, not only among members of the committee, but also among members of the public. That is the distinction that's drawn between expropriating property from state-owned entities or state-owned corporations on the one hand, and expropriating property from everyone else on the other hand, mostly members of the public. And 
The wisdom of this distinction has been questioned, and in my view, correctly so. There are good reasons for interrogating why this distinction is there. One is a fundamental conceptual reason. Why should consensus be sought where a power of expropriation is sought to be exercised? Expropriation definitionally does not require consent. Consent is irrelevant. And very often land is taken or property is taken without consent. But the point is for the bill to, Im to import consent as a precondition for expropriation conflicts with the very notion of expropriation itself. If consent is required, then why not simply transfer? Why does the Expropriation Act need to prescribe a mechanism which the expropriating authority can already, um, at least the object of which the expropriating authority can already achieve using negotiation and the power to agree? So for that reason, it is redundant. Secondly, it creates perhaps an irrational distinction between members of the public whose consent is not required because definitionally that it wouldn't be expropriation if it were for their property to be taken for a public purpose or in the public in interest and SOEs and SOCs whose consent and the consent of their, um, of their executive authority is required. And there seems to be very little reason for justifying that distinction. It may even be arbitrary, but I would add a qualification to that. If property is required for public purpose or in the public interest by an expropriating authority, and it sits in the ownership of another public entity, which also requires it for public purpose or in the public interest, there may be a contestation of public purposes and public interests at stake. And so if the expropriating authority exercises its powers to expropriate, there may also be a basis for the public entity which owns the property and which is needing it for public purpose or public interest to counter expropriate. But that is, a, that, that is something that can be resolved um, outside the ambit of the bill. The bill doesn't need to regulate that situation necessarily. It may require some thought, and I appreciate the, um, the, uh, the law advisor's um, point that this clause was inserted to accommodate section 41 of the constitution. Um, but of course, section 41 of the constitution applies to organs of state in different spheres of government and not necessarily to SOEs or SOCs. So um, the uh, servicing the, uh, meeting the needs of section 41 of the constitution might not be uh, achieved by clause 2.2 in any event. Ultimately, we believe that this is a matter that the committee needs to decide because it is a policy consideration. 
I have merely highlighted the legal factors that should inform that policy decision. I'm putting the, the ball back into the politician's court. Uh, there is a question which I'm going to have to expand. And if the investigative phase is included, is concluded properly, it would not require the consent quite. In fact, nothing in this bill should require consent, even the, there is at a very early stage an obligation to obtain the property through purchase before an expropriating authority resorts to the power of expropriation. That is something that the that Parliament chose to add in because of various concerns, but it is not legally required. Why? Because the it, because government already has the power to conclude a private purchase agreement. It doesn't need an expropriation act to give it that power. And so the clause is superfluous, but it also imposes an unnecessary precondition on the constitutional power to expropriate. But that is a decision the committee has and parliament has taken, and it's not constitutionally offensive. There's no problem with it from a constitutional perspective, but it does limit um, the exercise of the expropriation power uh, by setting this as a precondition. All right. Clause 3.2 and 3.3 are matters that I've already canvassed um, with um, uh, the honorable member of the DA. Um, there is one matter which is outstanding and it is referred to in, in paragraph 61 of the opinion on page 12. I'd like to take the committee to clause 3.3 of the bill. It provides that the minister's power to expropriate property, either in terms of clause, sub, sub clause one, which is her own power to expropriate for a public purpose or in a public interest, and in sub clause two, which is to do so on behalf of an organ of state, which is not itself an expropriating authority, applies to property which is connected to the provision and management of the accommodation, land and infrastructure needs of an organ of state. And then comes this qualification in terms of the minister's mandate. But let's, for the sake of argument, leave out that phrase in terms of the minister's mandate and look at what precedes it. Property which is connected to the provision and management of the accommodation, land, and infrastructure needs of an organ of state. Well, plainly, if one looks at the panoply of legislation which empowers the Minister of Public Works to do certain things, that is the Minister's mandate. The Minister's mandate is the management, provision, maintenance, and so on of accommodation, land, and infrastructure needs. And so the phrase in terms of the minister's mandate, one, is supererogatory. It's superfluous. It can go. But secondly, and this is important, it suggests that the minister's mandate might extend beyond that which is already defined in acts of parliament. And 
it is perhaps not advisable for the bill to permit the minister's mandate to be extended other than through um, other than through measures which serve before parliament itself, whether that is by way of cabinet instruction or whatever it may be. Fundamentally, the clause, the the phrase in terms of the minister's mandate adds nothing. But on, on the flip side, it could also mean that if something does not fit under the minister's undefined mandate, then the minister can't expropriate property um, for an organ of state. So let's consider an example where an organ of state would not ordinarily um, fit under the minister's mandate, but it needs property for an infrastructural purpose or for accommodation purpose and so on. Um, Without the phrase in terms of the minister's mandate, the minister could expropriate um, property on its behalf for its where it requires the property for public purpose or in the public interest and where the minister is satisfied that it requires the property. But if that is subject, subordinated to an undefined minister's mandate, then there is the risk that it might constrain what the minister can do even further. And ultimately, it's unnecessary. Legislation should not provide for language that is meaningless and potentially counterproductive. So we recommend that it be deleted. Clause 3.5. Person Ndobo's oh. hand is raised. Thank you, thank you, Honorable um, Samantha, for bringing that to me. Honorable Ndobo and uh, Honorable Matebula. Yes. Okay, thank you, Chairperson. Uh, by look of things, I doubt we'll finish today. I'd like to propose let's stop at 11 o'clock. Thank you, Shepherdson. Um, thank you, Honorable Jobo. We'll put that to the to the committee. Um, Honorable Matebula, your hand is up. Uh, thank you very much, Chair. Well, uh, I thought we are going to be shorter than uh, it is the case now, Chair, and... Uh, I thought that I would raise matters at the end of the, the presentation as per the advocate uh, that is providing, uh, you know, advices to the committee. I'm not so sure, Chair, uh, because I wanted to ask a question. However, the question that I wanted to ask, uh, it relates to the matter that they started with or matters that they started with uh, by the advocate. I'm not so sure if you will allow me at the end uh, of this presentation or should I ask the question because the reason one was quiet is because uh, one was taking notes and uh, thinking that uh, one will ask questions the minute that the advocate finishes his advice to, uh, to the committee. So I'm not so sure if then I may ask one or two questions. 
Um, Tebula, I would, I would, if, if the questions relate or comments relate to what the, the advocate Naidu has already presented, I would, I would say you may ask those questions. The, the issue raised by Honorable Jobo, uh, looking at the time and the fact that we, we also have a sitting uh, this afternoon that requires us to be maybe in one place or another. Um, I, I may ask the, the, the committee to discuss uh, what has been raised by Honorable Jobo, because so far there's no one who has seconded that. But if your question, Honorable Matibula, or comment relates to uh, what has already been said by U, U, U Advocate Naidu, I would allow you to, to do that. Uh, there's also another hand, Honorable Van Steden. Thank you, Honorable Chairperson. Now, may I make a suggestion? Um, if we have to come back, uh, say if we have to stop by 11 and we have to come back for another meeting, may I suggest that the advocate then came back with all the respondents to all the queries raised at, as he was proposed in, in his conclusion in his document he sent us today because of a shortage of time. Then he can address all the matters that was raised in this committee. And um, um, so I propose uh, that, that we go that route, uh, Honorable Chairperson. Thank you. In, in fact, Honorable Fansteden, you are supporting Honorable Jobo, but with an addition that uh, uh, Advocate Naidu bring all the documentation and, and the responses. Uh, uh, to all the questions and comments that we needed clarity on when we're deliberating on clause by clause. It, it's a support <laughs> and an addition. Correct, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, Honorable Matebula. Um, uh, thank you. you okay. uh, thank you very much, Chair. Uh, my greetings to you, the, uh, the whip of the committee, the minister. Uh, members of the committee as well as the advocate and the administration. Uh, let me start by saying that uh, um, thanks for the, for the advice and the presentation uh, made by, that is being made by the advocate. And uh, the, thereafter the interaction with the advice of the advocate, I must indicate that uh, an advice, it's an advice in this instance, this is an illegal advice. It is up to us as the uh, committee to take or not to take uh, based on legal facts that are put forward by the advocate. But as things stand, Chair, um, I am fully behind the advice given by the advocate I think it does assist us as the committee uh, moving forward, in particular to the fact that uh, uh, this is a bill that speaks direct to, to the constitution. And in a number of times, the advocate has been referring to section 25 uh, of the constitution. So I want to reiterate that we are not uh, out of the mark. We are still on track. Uh, what we have been doing, it has been constitutional. Um, Chair, well, Chair, I just want to check with the advocate. Uh, the advocate spoke of 
magistrates that uh, in matters of this nature of expropriation uh, in terms of the bill, if I quote the uh, advocate correctly, will not be dealt with uh, uh, by the, by, at the level of the magistrate. And then he has cited reasons uh, for that. Uh, one of the reasons that I heard him mentioning is that magistrates are not courts uh, of record, that, uh, which means that they do not uh, record their proceedings and facts thereafter. And you cannot, therefore, in future, make reference to, to those issues. I, I uh, do um, agree with the, the advocate on that. However, there are matters, advocate, that are being dealt with by magistrates. And they, they have been dealt with quite very successful. And I want to I want to refer you, advocate, to section uh, to clause thirty four of the constitution, which speaks to access to justice. And when you were explaining, advocate, you said that uh, uh, magistrates achieve in terms of access to justice, and I fully agree with you because this. Uh, is in line with section 34 of the constitution and they are cheaper because when you go to the high court, you definitely will have to need a, a, an advocate like yourself. Um, unless you are an attorney uh, who has been um, you know, allowed to practice at the level of the high court through the register of the high court, is then you can, uh, you know, um, be used at the high court, but going to the high court is not cheaper. Um, at some point, I heard the, the then uh, uh, Chief Justice saying that he has witnessed uh, some of the advocates, you know, charging up to 250,000 rand per day. You know, um, I was quite very shocked to hear that. Now, that brings me to uh, to the issue of utilization of magistrate courts, that uh, why should we not uh, make use of magistrate courts? Because magistrate courts are cheaper and most of they are very accessible. And you even spoke about the high courts and their divisions. Um, when you speak of magistrate courts, that they are they are all over. Uh, in each and every place, you find magistrate courts unlike the, the high courts. So hence I say it would be cheaper. Now, um, advocate, I also want to check that because not all matters, because I know for the fact that uh, when you have to take a matter to the high court, it must be 400,000 and above. And as far as I know, uh, not... Um, all properties are going to be 400,000 and above. So hence the reason I, I want to check with you, advocate, as to why could the uh, you know, magistrate courts not be utilized uh, on properties that are valued under 400,000. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Matebola. Advocate Naidu. 
Thank you, Chairperson. Um, I am happy to respond in writing. The simple answer is magistrates' courts generally are less able for capacity, training, competence reasons than judges in the high court to deal with very complex expropriation matters. I do accept that not all expropriations will be complex and not all matters will be of uh, large sums of money. And there is force in um, the honorable member from the ANC's uh, concern. What it would mean is that before approaching a court, if magistrates' courts were to have jurisdiction, before approaching a court, an affected person would have to ascertain what the value of the compensation in dispute will be before choosing the correct court. And in a way, it might beg the question. They may, they may be on the borderline and they may, um, out of caution, go to the high court instead. But they will have to make that election. And that's not always an easy, um, it's not an obvious um, preliminary hurdle for a layperson to cross. So because it would not be competent for the bill to increase the monetary jurisdiction of the magistrates' courts, we thought it might simply be simpler to say that these are the courts which are available. The High Court has jurisdiction throughout the country. There is the possibility of a new court with the same status as a High Court being created. Although the envisaged seat is Johannesburg, that court can move around the country. And we don't expect, and I suppose this is a matter for the committee, we don't expect expropriations to be so wide scale um, that every small town in the country will be facing uh, expropriations which might need to serve before the local magistrate because they cannot uh, get a ride into town or accommodation or afford lawyers' fees. So this doesn't seem, it, it might be um, over-egging the pudding. It might be creating a legal, uh, an un an invisible legal obstacle uh, in terms of the monetary jurisdiction. And it also might be, and I say this with respect to the magistracy, um, creating uh, the risk that quality might be compromised. Additionally, and importantly, as far as money is concerned, allowing people to go to the magistrate's court where the level of competence is considered to be less than the high court might mean that they simply add in a new layer of courts into the appellate hierarchy. They might need to go to the high court in any event. And so cutting out that tier um, would promote access to justice in the sense of promoting finality. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you. Um... Advocate Naidu, um, the, the, there is also this proposal uh, that at least at 11, because uh, you have also indicated several times that uh, you didn't sleep since Friday. 
and, 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 the, <laughs> and, and you're still on close 12 now. Um, in fact, you're still on page 12, not close 12. It's close, uh, you were to start close 3.5 because you were done with close 2 and 3. Um, Honorable Matebula. No, thank you very much, Chairperson, and, and thanks for the clarity that I got from uh, from Advocate. Uh, well, Chair, I, there's one thing that I have uh, omitted um, uh, in terms of what I wanted to raise, uh, not on the similar matter uh, as I was raising it, Chair, but I want to indicate uh, to, to you and also all of us here in this committee that looking at the, the bill um, and, and the advice that is given to us, uh, we, are actually, we are actually in consensus um, uh, uh, in terms of this bill. Uh, when you look at section 25, subsection 2 of the Constitution, um, which speaks uh, 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 about the issue of expropriation in terms of, uh, you know, general application uh, of, of, of the law and, and in terms of also given notices when it comes to expropriation. Uh, from what I have been hearing from the, the members as they have been participating is that we do not actually differ uh, in fact, there is a consensus in terms of the, the section that I have just quoted uh, of the Constitution. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, um, Honorable Matebula. Thank you, thank you. Honorable Naidu, um, excuse me. <laughs> we first said that you are a senior counsel, now I'm saying Honorable. <laughs> Advocate Naidu, can we maybe... Uh, deal with the last uh, clause. I don't know. There's a lot of information, even in this last clause, in terms of your response. Uh, maybe deal with clause uh, three point five uh, as as the last clause that we'll be dealing with. But also noting what has been raised by uh, Honourable Van Steden that uh, could you through the department, of course, try to ensure that we get all the documentation that you referred to for our next meeting in which you will be able to finish all these responses. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. May I have an indication as to when that meeting will be? This is our last meeting for this uh, quarter. Uh, definitely we will try and, and, and rework our next quarter's program so that this be the one of our first meetings. Uh, Honorable Minister, we will we'll try to do that. So you will, you will have all the time because uh, this is our last meeting for this quarter. Thank you, Chairperson. If I may make a comment about... 3.5 before going into the detail. Um, it is a particularly important point that the committee raised, and um, it might be more beneficial to reflect on what's said in writing before I present orally, um, because it is quite a 
technical and nuanced concept about changes in purpose of expropriation after expropriation. And what if the purpose falls away? What if the property is needed for another purpose? It requires quite a detailed and technical analysis. And if I may, I would, I would like to uh, present a, make a graphical presentation to the committee to break the process down. If, if it's in order with you, um, Chairperson, I will move on to clause 5.4, just for the sake of accomplishing something in what time remains. Alternatively, I'm in your hands and I'm quite uh, comfortable to continue at our next, at the next session. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh, I was looking at uh, you doing this within this uh, limited time that we have. Uh, will we be doing justice, uh, honorable members? Or we, we just listen and maybe take notes and then knowing that we will engage when we come back. Uh, Honorable Hicklin. Yeah, with all due respect, um, I love listening to the advocate, but I do believe that we will be doing him a grave injustice if we try and get him to rush what he is saying now. Um, the time is very, very short, as you said, we do have a sitting and the buses are leaving for Parliament. I, I honestly and truly do believe we should end the meeting now. Uh, that is just my personal opinion, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Hicklin. Honourable Franz Calvey. Honourable Franz Calvey, followed yes. by... Thank, Honor Thank yes. you very much, I totally agree with Honorable Hicklin. We are not going to do justice if we proceed. And I would therefore uh, like to second the proposal that we close the meeting now, but also that uh, the advocate indicated that there's other submissions that he still has or notes that he has. So if he can make that available to us in advance, so that we can further the discussions on those items as well. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Van Skalweg. Uh, Honorable Van Steden. No, I just want to support you. I think let's stop now and carry on at the next meeting. Okay. Thank you, Honorable Members. Um, Honorable Matebola, is this a new hand or a legacy hand? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, honourable. Thank you, uh, honourable minister. Uh, we really appreciate that you brought your legal team to respond to what we have raised when we're dealing with clause by clause. But as indicated by honourable members, we have a sitting, and and uh, the buses will leave earlier than uh, than normal uh, today. So we can't really uh, finish all this, but we really appreciate what Advocate Naidu has been doing uh, and uh, dealing uh, with all the clauses that issues have been raised and in a manner that is very clear to all of us. We really appreciate that. But for today, but for today we, we, we really have to adjourn and then uh, we will communicate the program uh, for the next quarter 
But even if we have not yet communicated the program, your team and together with the department should go through all the issues that were raised in the in the in the in, in when we're dealing with clause by clause of the expropriation bill. Thank you again, Minister, for placing our meeting today and being part of this, hoping that even in the next one we will communicate the program and tell you which day and date that we want you to come and, and, and respond to this. Honorable members, this is the last date of our of our portfolio committee in this in this quarter. So we will be going for recess as we know that we're closing formally on the 31st of uh, of March and we will be coming back uh, sometime in April. All the best, uh, happy holidays. Uh, please come back safe, uh, honorable members. The coronavirus is still there. Yes, it is. Uh, the infections are low, but it is still there. So please stay safe and come back uh, still alive. Hoping that all our members that are not well uh, will speedily recover on whatever illness that uh, that, that they have. Um, let's meet in in Parliament, uh, 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 honorable Sam Graham Mare. Samantha, Graham, Mara, and Honor Picklin to deal with your motion. We are ready as the component of the ANC. Thank you, honorable members. The meeting is adjourned. Thanks so much. Recording stopped. Thank you, Chair.